Hello, and welcome to A Flatpack History of Sweden, the podcast that chronologically takes you through Swedish history from when the first people arrived here right up until the modern day. I'm Elsa. And I am Chris. And after two episodes on law and order in Sweden during the High Middle Ages, it's now time to return to the royal and political action that's going on in the 1200s. But before we get to that, we need to talk about a strange Swedish phrase. And so this one is Geo Ort Skugan. Yeah, go to the forest. That is a strange one when you translate it to English. So what does it mean apart from giving someone an order? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could say it if you just want someone to go to a forest or go to the forest. But it's more often used to describe something. So something went to the forest and it meant that it went badly. So it's like a swear phrase. Yeah. Without you... being swearing. Yeah, I mean, let's say that you're in school and you had a school project and it didn't go well, you got a terrible mark on it, then you could say that your project, again. it went to the forest. But is it usually just because of like a mistake, like if your PowerPoint presentation broke? Or is it just, you did it badly? Can it be both? I think it can be both. It's it's just a generic phrase to describe something that uh, that didn't go well. You can also use it in a sort of speculative future sense. Oh, the hell come again with skill again. This will go to the forest. This is not going to go well. Yeah, well, hopefully this episode won't go to the forest. And it's one I've been looking forward to for quite a while. When you do sort of like the long-term planning for what you're going to be reaching in five, six, seven episodes time, this was one that I was looking forward to. Yeah, well, of course you would, because we're back on your sort of favourite topics. Kings and royal drama, political drama, which there was a lot of in the 1200s. Yes, and so where were we up to last time? Because we've had a bit of a gap looking at the law and order side of things uh, since the last chronological episode, uh, which was back in episode 34, which we called Kings and Jarls Play Jenga. Um, <laughs> and we saw a bit of a breakdown in the established system of having a king from the Eric dynasty being followed by a king from the Sverker dynasty. Now, the system eventually fixed itself, but that wasn't without Sverker II trying to... To break it. No, because Sverker II tried to appoint his one-year-old son, Johan, as Jarl, as his wife was part of the Bielbo dynasty, and they saw Johan as the perfect mix of these two families. Unfortunately for the couple, the Erik dynasty didn't stand for this power grab, and after three separate battles over five years, Sverker ends up dead, and Erik X becomes king. The Bielbu family retains the Jaldom after Yuan is removed from the role, with first Knut, then Folke, and then Karl the Death serving as Jarls. Erik X dies of natural causes, a, a pleasure not bestowed on uh, too many kings of the time. He hadn't been king for that long either. He died in 1216, uh, a few months before his only son, another Eric, is born. 
So supported by the Bielbu family, the former baby Jarl, Johan, returns to become the Sverko dynasty's last king. The most memorable thing in his reign is a voyage east to Estonia, where he manages to subdue a few locals uh, before heading home. Unfortunately for Sweden, almost all of the men he left behind, including Karl the Death and the Bishop of Linköping, who was another Bielbo family member, they are killed in an attack on the Swedish castle over there. Yeah, which isn't very good um, in any shape or form. And it doesn't really get any better for Sweden at the time because Yuan soon dies unmarried and with no children. So the Sverker dynasty, as we said, is officially off the map, at least in the male side of things. And that's where we left up last time. So let's look at what happens next. Yeah, so after Karl the Death uh, was killed in Estonia... His son, Ulf Fosse, is made Jarl by Yuan. He takes over in 1220. So Ulf is two years into the job when it becomes his turn to manage a royal transition. That's because Yuan dies, and so Ulf Fosse invites Eric to Sweden to take the throne as Eric XI. After all, they have to stick with this informal rotating system. So the previously exiled Eric, son of Eric X, returns to Sweden and is proclaimed king. But just like Yuan, he is crowned when he is young. Very young, it starts to get a bit silly. Eric is only six years old in 1222 when he is crowned king. Yeah, that's pretty young uh, for any job, I think, on the planet. And if there had been a few lingering doubts before, it's now absolutely crystal clear that it's the Bielbu family in charge, because Eric is king and has two slightly older sisters, but no other living relative. Even though he's only six years old, what had Eric been up to in his six years in exile? Because remember, he, as he was born after his father had died, he didn't really have any time as being seen as the official heir to the throne in Sweden. And that's because as soon as Eric the Tenth died, baby Eric and his mother Rakissa pack up their things and move to Denmark. And that's moving back to Denmark for Rakissa because she is the sister of the ruling Danish king Valdemar II, and thereby both children of the previous King Valdemar I of Denmark. Yeah, so essentially when her husband dies, what Rikiza does is take her kids and return home to Denmark. Uh, we mentioned last time that Valdemar, along with the Pope, originally tried to stop the Swedes from crowning Yuan as king, but eventually they accepted that the Sverker dynasty was back in control for a while. In terms of a childhood, we can only imagine that Erik had quite a good upbringing, living at the royal court in Denmark for his first couple of years. Seeing as his mother was also Danish, he probably learned to speak Danish. Oh no. Uh, yeah, bad for a future <laughs> Swedish king. <laughs> crazy times. Uh, but it wasn't all fun and games for young Erik, uh, because when he was just four years old, his mother dies as well. Uh, she didn't live to see her son become king, which happened, like we said, just two years later. 
And there isn't anything official about this because like a lot of this recent Swedish history, there's not too many sources, but we can assume that Valdemar looked after Eric for the next two years. And then we're now back up to date because it's then 1222 and Eric is recalled to Sweden, if we can call it that, by the Bjelbu family. Since the Sverker dynasty has died out and baby Eric is the only member of the Eric dynasty left standing. With no rivals in the country, and naturally with the support of now Jarl of Falsa, the six-year-old Eric was hailed as king sometime between August 1222 and July of the following year, 1223. The Archbishop of Sweden supported his cause to be king and appears to have crowned him in Strängnäs Cathedral on 31st of July, 1223. So he maybe had a couple of months being the unofficial king, but then was officially crowned in July 1223. Now, of course, a six-year-old, or maybe by then just about seven-year-old king, isn't going to be the best king. So a regency council was formed to rule the country until the king could become of age and take control himself. In this council were Bengt, the Bishop of Skara, who we briefly mentioned last time around, and he was also named the Chancellor, and in addition to this Bengt, there were a number of powerful locals, one Norwegian cousin of Eric, and another man called Knut the Tall. Uh, this Knut the Tall is supposedly a distant relative of Eric. If you remember all the way back to Eric the Holy, who is the founder of this Eric dynasty, he had two sons one who went on to become Knut I, but then also another one called Philip. This Philip maybe had a son who in turn might have been the father of Knut the Tall, so he would have been a distant cousin of Eric's. Uh, but this branch of the family can't have been that important before if he was indeed a relative, as he's never in contention in the power plays of previous episodes and only appears at this moment in the story. He is mentioned in a source as being a member of the Regency Council and being a relative of Eric. Uh, that is all we have. Indeed, some historians think he might not even have been a member of the Eric dynasty at all. Anyway, these members of the council appeared in a contemporary document from about 1225 as acting on behalf of the minor king. They called themselves in this document his conciliari, or in Swedish rådsherre. Now, if we translate that back to English, rådsherre actually translates as Advice knight. Which is very cool. Knight being the guy on a horse with a shield, not uh, day and night. No, I'd quite like to be a rådsherre. Mm -hmm. I'm the advice knight. Uh, anyway, this is the first time that the title chancellor appears in Sweden. But in modern terms, maybe it's easier to think of this role as prime minister or speaker of the house in a kind of uh, sort of way, even though we're far from a democracy. 
Yes, and when looking at the other members of the council, plus Ulfasa, who is still a Jarl, it's actually Bengt, Bishop of Skara, who seems to hold the most power. He has been Bishop of Skara since about 1219 and became Chancellor as part of this Regency Council. He's sometimes known as Bengt the Younger, for those people looking further into the sources, as there was a previous Bishop of Skara also called Bengt back in the 1100s, because, you know, they don't like to invent new names, just reuse the most popular ones. And this Bengt actually appears first in historical documents as one of the kingdom's leading men and a supporter of King Yuan back at his coronation in 1219, which we saw in episode 34. He was one of the church figures given privileges by Yuan, ensuring he could collect more church taxes and things like that that we mentioned at the time. In the years after the coronation of Eric, Bishop Bengt appears as one of the real rulers in the kingdom alongside Jarl Ufasa, hence his title as Chancellor. He's also the only bishop among the king's regency council, so it it seems like Banks was quite a harsh upholder of church orders and rules, and this was probably inspired by a trip to Rome where he saw the Pope just before Yuan died, getting some uh, papal inspiration to uphold these uh, Christian laws in Sweden. And his entry in the Vestjötterlagen says that he was harsh and fierce towards both priests and lay people. Ooh, sounds intense. One other thing was happening in the church at this time, and very confusingly, it involves another bishop called Bengt. Oh no, is there an Ingeard involved at all, perhaps? No, thankfully not. Uh, this second bishop Bengt is the bishop of Linköping, and he's part of the Bielbu family, so he's a cousin of Jarl Ulfose. Perhaps we should just call him Bishop Bielbo for today, as there is now a bishop called Bengt in both Skara and Linköping. We can call the one in Linköping Bishop Bielbo. Yes, I think that's an excellent idea. Uh, what does this Bishop Bielbo get up to? Well, first he starts off expanding some of his church authority. Now, the Bishop of Linköping is actually the one with ecclesiastical authority over the island of Gotland. Uh, Keen followers of Swedish history and lovers of Swedish geography will have recognised that we have effectively avoided talking about Gotland and Öland so far in the podcast. Uh, Don't worry, we will do a whole episode on the history of Sweden's two biggest islands very soon to catch us all up on what's been going on there. But for now, this will have to do. Uh, We read a fascinating book, uh, or rather the first part of a fascinating book, of the history of Visby Cathedral. Visby being the main town on the island of Gotland. So let's give a shout out to Gunnar Svanström for his book Visby Cathedral, or Visby Domkyrka in Swedish. Yes, the book is in Swedish in case uh, you want to go and read this book. This is when the building of Visby Cathedral gets its first mention in the history books, but not perhaps as you might expect. So, as we mentioned, the churches on Gotland belonged to the Bishop of Linköping, and had done since the beginning of the 1100s. 
According to an agreement made up at the time, every three years the Bishop of Linköping would visit Gotland's churches and consecrate new churches and some altars. Now, at this point, just like Stockholm, Gotland was home to a large community of German traders. At some point before the 1220s, not really sure when, these German traders in Visby had set up their own little parish church. And this was Church of St. Mary. And in 1225, Bishop Bielbu writes a letter inaugurating and consecrating the church as part of his domain. But interestingly enough, because it was built primarily and mainly to serve the German traders and not the local people, the church didn't receive its own parish area of responsibility or sort of area of land to look after. Part of Bishop Bielbu's letter is him trying to manage the tricky relationship between this new German church and the other churches who are already being established in the area serving the local Swedish people. Presumably the existing churches didn't want to lose any of their land from their parishes to give to the German traders and so there had to be some sort of negotiation about the land. Yeah, this is very interesting indeed. It's sort of an example of local politics in the 1200s. Uh, another example of the Germans getting involved in local life in Sweden at this point, just like how we saw them getting involved in life in Stockholm. Now, this small German church won't become a cathedral for a couple of more centuries, but it is sort of off to a fun start as an official place of worship in the Swedish ecclesiastical system. One building that is going to become a cathedral, however, is Bishop Bielbo's home church back in Linköping. Uh, this is because in 1230, if we skip ahead for a brief moment, he starts a major building project. Uh, he took the initiative to expand a church in Linköping to become a cathedral. You might think that that's not a too complicated task, but let's read out a description of this job from the cathedral's own website. Work on the cathedral was started in 1230, with the main building works being completed in 1520. Linköping Cathedral is the most impressive and expensive Swedish church building of the Middle Ages. <laughs> That's quite amazing, really. Work started in 1230 and finished in 1520, so it only took 290 years to build. <laughs> it's like the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, but in medieval Sweden. Yeah. I guess Bishop Bielbo wasn't around to see it being finished then. No, no he certainly wasn't. He hadn't lived for uh, nearly 300 years. Do you think they dug up his body and put his skeleton in sort of like a little chair so he could watch the final stone being put in place? Gosh, I hope they didn't. Yeah. Uh, but he would have been proud because, as the cathedral's website says... It was Sweden's first Gothic building project. So we're finally catching up with some European counterparts. Uh, for example, Sens Cathedral in France was the first cathedral to be built in the Gothic architectural style starting 95 years earlier in 1135. So Sweden is a bit behind on uh, this architectural style. But anyway... This was a major building project, but it was also happening at a point of great drama in the political world. So to explain, let's jump back just a few years to 1226. 
That is because, despite a steady start, and unlike the foundations of the cathedral in Linköping, the Regency Council started to have its own wobbles in the mid-1220s. Yes, it's definitely wobbling, because in 1225, the Norwegian king attacks Vermland in the west of Sweden. Norway is actually still in the middle of its 110-year civil war era that we've mentioned recently, and a lot of minor nobles and pretenders to the Norwegian throne roam around Scandinavia each time they're exiled from Norway. And at this time, one of them happens to be living in Sweden and has a little bit of support from the locals there. So the Norwegian king doesn't stand for this and actually comes into Sweden to try and deal with them. Luckily for Sweden, this ends quite swiftly, but it also affects the Regency Council, as the next year, in 1226, Eric's Norwegian cousin leaves Sweden to try and claim the Norwegian throne. To cut a very long story extremely short, as we aren't a history of Norway, this cousin doesn't become King of Norway, but also doesn't return to Sweden, because he becomes a relatively powerful figure in Norway for the next 35 years or so. Uh, We won't mention him because it just makes things a bit more confusing. Um, But oddly enough, Norwegian politics seemed to be the talk of the town, or at least the talk of the church in the 1220s. That is because the current Norwegian king was known to be an illegitimate son of a previous king. Just like King Eric, the king was born after his father died, and so there was a lot of controversy around his birth because his mother only shows up with him as a young child a few years later. So it's all a bit uh, dramatic. Yeah, and so who does the Pope turn to? Because, uh, of course, the Pope needs to get involved. Well, he turns to Bishop Bingt, the Chancellor of Sweden. Bingt, along with the Archbishop down in Lund, were given the job of investigating the circumstances surrounding the birth of the Norwegian king. Uh, Like they're some sort of religious private detectives, I don't know. Pope squad. Uh, However, they never got to finish this mission, as by 1229, the Pope has to reassign the mission to two Norwegian bishops, because both the Archbishop of Lund and Bishop Bingt had died. Oh dear. (laughs) That's one way to not finish your job, is to die beforehand. True. Uh, Exactly when Bishop Bingt died, nobody knows, but most historians date it to uh, 1228 or 1229. Yeah, so not only does the Pope need to find a new private detective, but Sweden has lost their first ever Chancellor. And perhaps because of a fight over who would become the next Chancellor, but we don't really know for sure, fighting erupts the next year between the Regency Council and those loyal to the King. So... (laughs) It didn't last very long, this uh, peaceful Regency Council. And so King Eric is 13 at this point, and he suddenly sees Knut the Tall unite with a disparate group of nobles called the Folkungs, and they start a brief but brutal civil war. Uh, Before we continue, we should just quickly explain something about the Folkungs, uh, because it's a bit confusing. Uh, Like Chris said, they seem to have been a group of disparate nobles who were trying to combat the increasing power of the church and the state 
and seem to have been based in Uppland. They were a bit grumpy and annoyed and wanted to return to the days where the kings of Sweden were elected properly by the local chieftains and petty kings in areas like Svealand, Uppland, Västergötland and they saw that the power of the king and especially the power of the jarl was increasing and that it was in fact the Bjelbo family who were more or less choosing the kings. Uh, they also didn't like the fact that power was now increasingly sort of centered in Västergötland and other more southerly parts of the kingdom and they fought for Uppland to regain more power and influence. For those reading ahead or reading extra, it's not just confusing in itself, but what is more confusing is that later historians, starting in around the 1600s, began using the Falkungs to refer not just to this group of upset nobles, but also using this name for the Bielbu family. And so in earlier history books, the Bielbus are sometimes referred to as the Falkungs, but to call them Falkungs has no real merit because they certainly didn't call themselves that. We're not really sure why this weird naming practice began, other than that historians maybe thought the name Falkung sounded quite cool, and so wanted to apply that to the no doubt cool and powerful Bielbu family, just ruining the history books for everyone. Yeah, and modern day historians have stopped doing this since it's confusing and inaccurate, but you can still come across it in uh, history books. Uh, also, something that adds to the confusion, there was another noble family in the 1200s whose name was actually Folkung. Uh, but anyway, just to clear it up for now, when we say Folkungs, we mean this group of noble families who were unhappy with the way things were going and nothing else. Yes, we're sticking to the Bjelbu family being the Bjelbu family. Yes. And it's because of the increasing power of the Bjelbu family, the power concentrating itself in Vestergötland, that builds up this resentment from the Falkungs towards the current system. And this resentment's been building for quite a while now. And they see the Regency Council and a very young king as the perfect opportunity for them to try and force Sweden back to the ways of the past. And so war it is. Uh, on the 29th of November, in either 1229 or 1230, there is a battle at a place called Ulustra. Uh, although sources and historians argue, like always, if this was a real place or not. As for the result of the battle, well, Erik is defeated and retreats back to Denmark, where his uncle Valdemar is still ruling. Uh, we don't really have more information than that. We just know that the young king is forced to flee, and Knut the Tall becomes king uh, with the name Knut II of Sweden, put in place there by the Folkungs. Interestingly, Ulfase remains Jarl, uh, so perhaps the Folkungs didn't achieve everything they wanted to in the war, as the Bielbo family still have a very powerful position in the kingdom. But still, Eric is gone. 
and we have another exiled ex-king to look after. I mean, Scandinavia in the 1200s must have just been littered with exiled kings. Everywhere you turned, there would have been an exiled king. Knut the Tall seems to have jumped right into being king because he starts off making a few changes to the laws of the land. And from now on, the king was required to review the laws of Sweden every third year, and those collecting money for debts weren't allowed to enter the house of the person who owed the money unless someone from the courts, or the government, if we can call it that, was there with them. Oh, that sounds very 21st century, doesn't it? Yeah, it's sort of like a check on personal revenge by sort of a tax collector type chap following you around, making sure you didn't nick someone's cow when all you were only supposed to be taking was his goat or something. Yeah, Uh, that's a good rule. In the meantime, uh, Knut has two adult or very nearly adult sons who are possibly helping him out running the country too. But we'll return to at least one of them much later on in the timeline because that's it. Knut dies. What? Yep, that, that's, that's it. He is dead. Uh, a few years after becoming king, he dies in 1234. Um, sources are a bit contradictory about the exact circumstances, but sooner or later, Eric returns from exile in Denmark and is crowned king for a second time. Oh. The Annals of Lund say that Eric returned to Sweden before Knut died and was trying to claim the throne when Knut the Tall dies. But the Eric Chronicle says that Eric returned to Sweden after Knut's death and a little bit of fighting as well. Mm. So, uh, yeah, the exact circumstances are shrouded and lost to history, unfortunately. But either way, Knut is dead and Eric is back in business for a second term, (laughs) if we can call it that. The fact that Eric returns implies that the Falkungs didn't really have enough time or political power to force through enough changes and drag Sweden back to the time where the different regions and areas of the country had a stake in electing the king. The return of Eric is seen by modern historians as an example of the Bjerbu family once again taking back control of the royal system in Sweden or keeping hold of it throughout the reign of Knut the Tall. So Erik is back, and crucially, this time, he is now just about 18. So no need for a regency council for his second reign. So that's good timing. Uh, There was still some drama, though, so don't worry. Dr. Hans Gillingstam, a legendary Swedish historian and long-term editor of the Swedish Biographical Dictionary, uh, which is an excellent source that's part of the National Archives, he believes that there was a lot of tension between Erik and his jarl, Ulf Fosse, because, after all, Ulf Fosse had remained jarl whilst Knut was king, so how loyal really is he? Ulf Fosse was, like any natural Bielbil family member, quite pragmatic, it seems, uh, in his in his approach. Erik and his supporters believed that Ulf Fosse should have fought harder against Knut, against the Folkung faction in court, and backed Erik's cause while he was in exile, instead of being so stubbornly pragmatic. 
However, the very fact that Eric was able to return and the Folkungs had not been able to reinstate a fully elective system implies that the Bielbu family managed to retain a certain amount of control over the political system. Yeah, because after all, it was them who decided they should bring back Eric. Yeah, whatever the reason for their anger at Ulfose, Eric's supporters were to be disappointed, as Ulfose had spent a long time, by now around 15 years as Jarl, and had clearly learned a lot from his family's history about how to stay in power. A young king from a nearly extinct dynasty certainly did not have the political power to remove him, so they would just have to get along. Uh, the fact that the Folkungs couldn't remove Ulfase either or get their reforms through shows you the extent of his power as well. Yeah, he seems to be uh, learning from the best of the Bialbu family. And uh, surprisingly, after a bit of a rocky start, Eric and Ulf uh, seemed to get on for quite a while. They also patched things up with the King of Norway, which uh, helped keep some stability in the northwestern part of the kingdom too. Eric's uncle, Valdemar, is still King of Denmark until 1241, and he's then succeeded by his son, who of course is therefore Eric's cousin, so there's still quite a close connection there too. And it's quite clear that Eric relied heavily on the Bielbu family to keep control of the country. Whilst the Falkungs are no longer in power, there doesn't seem to be a big massacre of their supporters or any reprisals taken against them. They seem to have grudgingly accepted the return of Eric and slunk away back into the shadows, uh, at least for the moment. In the meantime, the Bielbu family's grip on power is only strengthened later in the 1230s, when King Eric's older sister Ingeborg marries a man called Berja Magnusson another cousin of the Jarl of Farsa. According to the Eric Chronicle, there was quite a battle to marry Ingebjörg, so the Bjelbu family must have been quite happy to get another strong connection to the king's family. Whilst it was probably a relatively big deal back in the day, if you think back to, say, when Prince Harry got married, this has gone down as a much bigger event in history in hindsight, uh, that is because we see the first appearance of this new member of the Bielbu family, Birger. Um, this Birger is born in around 1208 or 1210, uh, we'll say around 1208, judging by what we mentioned back in episode 34. That is because this Birger is son of Magnus Minnerhweld, who we proposed was killed in battle in 1208, but some historians say 1210. This makes Birger the brother of recently deceased Bishop Bielbu and their other brother who was previously the Bishop of Linköping. Birja is, as we mentioned, the cousin of current Jarl Ufasa, which makes him a nephew of Ufasa's father and previous Jarl Karl the Deaf, and also nephew of the other Birja, Birja Brusa, who died six or so years before this new Birja Magnusson was born. Now, historians believe that Birja Magnusson was named after this uncle Birja Brusa because Birja Brusa was such a powerful member of the family and had a long time as Jarl and someone that clearly the whole family looked up to. And that's the thing with the Bjelbu family. Just 
being born into it makes you a powerful person by default, as you'll have so many powerful family members alongside you and in positions of power. It's the fact that his cousin is the Jarl, though, that makes this new marriage particularly important to both the Bielbu family and the king. Having Beria married to the king's older sister can only bring more influence to the Bielbu family. Like most newly married political couples of the era, they have one goal in particular right from the start, and that is producing some heirs. Uh, Bioyo and Ingeboy get going on this right away, and by the time this episode ends, six children will have been born. We won't mention any of them yet, as they only start to do important things in the storyline, in the next episode or so, so we don't want to make it more complicated than necessary. Uh, the next couple of years start ticking by in Sweden, and the country seems to be focused on consolidating itself rather than anything more dramatic. The Folkungs are still seemingly content with things, and Erik is growing into his role as a bit of a puppet king for the Bjelbjö family. And so what does Sweden tend to do when things are a bit stable at home? Well, we go east, of course. Yes, uh, Sweden has been expanding its influence to the east for quite a while now. And we'll return to this in more detail in a few future episodes, especially in an episode all about this early period of Swedish involvement in Finland. But all we need to know for now is that it starts with a new expedition. And this expedition supposedly led to the establishment of a permanent fortress called Tavastaboy in southwestern Finland and the formal Christianization of the region. This Swedish expedition was sanctioned by Pope Gregorius IX, who wanted to make sure that the fairly newly Christianized areas around the eastern shores of the Bay of Bothnia stayed Christian because they've been swaying this way and that when it came to Christianity <laughs> a bit recently. And so that's why the Swedish intervention is even sometimes called a crusade in the history books, although certainly in the modern day it's quite debatable whether that's the right term or not. Either way, modern historians suggest that Björn Magnusson was either leading the expedition or was one of the commanders. There has been some confusion as to when this expedition or campaign in Finland took place. Earlier historians said it wasn't until 1248-49, but that makes no sense when we factor in other events, uh, especially events in Bioja Magnusson's life. Instead, it is much more likely that it took place 10 years earlier, 1238 to 1239, which is also what most historians today seem to agree on. So, let's take 1239, and Berger Magnusson and the rest of the Swedish expedition is busy in modern-day Finland. But they don't just stop there. They want to go even further east and attack the pesky Novgorod Republic, which they do in 1240. Actually, the Novgorod Republic is an important reason why the Swedes headed over across the sea in the first place, because they want to try and stop Novgorod's influence in the area, or at least try and limit it. The Swedes are sending this expedition to try and go up the Neva River, which goes from the Gulf of Finland in the Baltic Sea all the way into Lake Ladoga, and the river actually goes right through modern-day St. Petersburg, in fact. 
according to the Novgorod Chronicle, which is still around 100 years away from being written, by the way, so keep that in mind when we judge its uh, reliability, the Swedish force landed where the river Isora met the river Neva. Now, the Novgorod Republic, knowing that controlling the Neva River effectively gave them full control over this amazing trade route all the way down to Constantinople that we've heard so much about, naturally didn't just sit around and let the Swedes start taking control of this important area. The Prince of Novgorod, called Alexander, led a small army out to attack the Swedish invaders. This Alexander actually goes down as a legendary figure in both Rus and modern Russian history, and he starts off young. He's only 19 at the time of this battle, but he's actually been Prince of Novgorod since he was 15. 15? Well, it beats what I was doing at 15, but it only gets better. Alexander beats the Swedes, and the Battle of the Neva saved Novgorod from a full-scale invasion from the West. Uh, because of this battle, 19-year-old Alexander gained the nickname Nivsky, which means Ovneva. Uh, shall we see what the Novgorod Chronicle has to say about this event? So it says, The Swedes came with their prince, with their bishops, and halted in the Neva at the mouth of the Isora, wishing to take possession of Lake Ladoga, or in one word, of Novgorod and of the whole Novgorod province, which isn't one word, by the way, Novgorod Chronicle. Um, but again, the most kind and merciful God, lover of men, preserved and protected us from the foreigners, since they laboured in vain without the command of God. For the news came to Novgorod that the Swedes were going towards Ladoga and Kainax. Alexander, with the men of Novgorod and of Ladoga, did not delay at all. He went against them and defeated them by the power of Saint Sophia and the prayers of our Sovereign Lady, the Holy Mother of God and Eternally Virgin Mary, on the 15th day of July. So it's actually almost the anniversary, uh, but let's uh, continue. Um, there was a great slaughter of Swedes. Their leader, by name of Sipiridon, was killed, and some thought that their bishop was also killed there. And when they had loaded two ships with the bodies of high-born men, they let them sail to the sea, but the others that were unnumbered they cast to a pit that they buried, and many others were wounded, and that same night they fled, without waiting for the Monday light, with shame. Wow, dramatic, as always, when you read the Novgorod Chronicle. Now, there is no mention of this expedition in any Swedish sources, uh, sadly. There's also no mention in Swedish sources of a bishop dying at this point. But, again, maybe the Swedes kept quiet because they lost and you know don't want to record a loss uh, whereas the people of Novgorod won and obviously wanted to write poetically about it as we'll see Bjorn Magnusson will become a very influential figure and maybe he wanted to remove traces of this not very successful campaign early on in his career from the records when he became more powerful himself. 
Yeah, that's, that's certainly plausible. And uh, we should also just quickly mention this Spiridon that the Chronicle mentions as the leader of the Swedes. Modern historians have no idea who this is or who it might refer to, or even if it's a real person. Maybe it was an odd um, Novgorod title for something. Nobody knows. It's another one of those mysteries of history, unfortunately. Yeah, so that's what happened in the East. Uh, on the home front, it is King Eric's turn to get married next. Um, perhaps he didn't want to be left out of both the marriage game and of the Bielbo family. So in 1243 or 1244, he marries Katharina, daughter of Jarl Folke, who was another cousin of Bjarne Magnusson, albeit one who died uh, right around the time Bjarne was born. Most importantly, though, this Katharina's mother was a woman called Helena, who's the daughter of Sverker II. So Eric has married into the Bjelbu family on his wife's father's side and to the now extinct Sverker dynasty on Katharina's mother's side. Yeah, and that's quite a powerful alliance right there, or at least pedigree. And the kids from this relationship would be able to claim almost ultimate descendants to almost every Swedish monarch all the way back to Stenshiel 200 years earlier. But... But there will be no children from this marriage. <laughs> um, perhaps that's a good thing, like, genetically speaking. Um, to Otherwise, you could imagine getting quite inbred at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really quite, uh, quite inbred. Uh, some sources do say that the couple maybe had a few baby daughters who died in infancy, uh, which would be very sad. Uh, but there are no children who survive into adulthood. We have one more major political event to cover today. Uh, but before we go into that, a small piece of trivia, or perhaps background for you. We know that Ulfose has been Jarl for around 25 years by the time of Erik's marriage. He had an extremely strong position in the country, with his cousin Bjorn seemingly working as his fixer. Uh, or at least military man to send on these expeditions abroad, uh, Ulfosse also had some other form of political or economic control. He was able to mint coins in his own name. Yes, normally something reserved just for the king, several coins survive today that bear his symbol on them. Yeah, and that's really quite impressive power for a non-king. And this power over the kingdom is going to be tested one final time. And that's in 1247, when the Falkungs are back once again. They're like whack-a-moles. <laughs> they just appear like, Falkung, 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 and get bashed on the head. And uh, they're going to get bashed on the head again. We mentioned earlier that King Knut the Tall had two sons who seemed to be helping him run the country during the short period he was in charge of Sweden between Eric's two spells as king. Well, one of these sons is named Holmger, and he leads this Falkung rebellion in the north of the country, where the Falkungs had retreated and still had a bit of influence, and they raise an army of peasants to march on Eric. 
Sources are unclear on Ulfasa's role at this point and what exactly the chain of events was. Some people suggest Ulfasa joined the rebellion, which sounds like an amazingly stupid decision for someone with effectively all the power in the kingdom. Whereas other people say he might have already died by the time the forces come to blow, and a third group of people suggest he was alive at the battle, but dies shortly afterwards. We're not really sure which one of these it is, but it would seem very weird for him to take part in the rebellion against the king he was effectively the puppet master over, and he doesn't agree with the Falcon's political goals either. Indeed, so most likely he either died just before or soon after. Uh, either way, who does Eric put in charge of his forces against the Falcons? Well, of course, it's Bjarja Magnusson, a veteran of the expeditions to Finland and Novgorod. Uh, the battle took place at Sparsetra, which is located in Upland, the Falcons' heartland. So. It is north of the modern-day town of Anshoping. Uh, according to tradition, uh, it was fought on waterlogged meadows west of the church of Spalsetra, which actually sounds quite fun to fight in a, on a waterlogged meadow, but probably not. Uh, what definitely doesn't sound fun is the way the battle went for the Falkungs. Their peasant army seems like it had little hope of winning. Bilyo Magnusson had clearly learned from big historical battles in Scandinavia, such as those fought during the Danish Civil War, because he had heavy cavalry for the first time in Swedish history. This is the first time it was used in a battle in Sweden. You might imagine that this would have been quite a surprise and somewhat overwhelming for the peasants from Upland. And you would be right, because <laughs> the battle was a crushing victory for Berja and King Eric. The fact that it was such a crushing victory and that they were peasants going up against the king's forces imply that it might have actually been the king and Berja sort of proactively going after the Folkungs rather than the Folkungs rising in rebellion. After the battle, the pretender to the throne Holmger, he survived and fled north, even further up in Upland. But it wasn't long before he was arrested by men loyal to the king and was beheaded. Ugh. Yep, dead. And uh, the other major leaders of the rebellion, potentially all farsa if we want to believe that story, uh, were either killed in the battle or also executed shortly afterwards. Interestingly, when it comes to Holmger, the Eric Chronicles say that King Eric walked with Holmger's body to the grave at his funeral, with some archaeologists and historians like Henrik and Frederick Lindstrom suggesting that this ritual meant that the old Norse way of honouring dead enemies was still being practised in Sweden at this point. Holmger might have been on the wrong side of the battle, but he was still an honourable foe. Uh, so what is the fallout from this battle and the year 1247 in general in Sweden? Well, it is a big year and a bit of a monumental change in the country is about to happen. Uh, because regardless of if he fought alongside Holmgör and was executed afterwards or if he just died before or after the battle, Ulf Fosse is dead. 
that means uh, that by the time we transition into 1248, King Eric needs a new Jarl. And there's really only one person to turn to. Björjör Magnusson. This new job means Björjör gets the name change that he becomes famous for. From now on, he will be known as Björjör Jarl to separate him from his uncle Björjör Brosa, who was also a Jarl. We will dedicate the next episode, and in fact probably the next couple of episodes actually, to Björjör Magnusson and his life and all the important things that happen in the second half of the 1200s. Yeah, it can, like when I first read about him, I thought his last name was Jarl. And, and Every like... Swedish schoolchild in history has thought that because that's how it's written out. But he is Björjör, who is a Jarl. Yeah, it should be like Björjör, comma, Jarl. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yes, and because a bit like Clark Kent in Superman, uh, Björjör Magnusson changes identities. And it is this new man, Björjör Jarl, who appears in all the sources. Obviously, he doesn't change identity, but the role that he gets and the amount of influence he has in the kingdom changes, and only for the better. Birger Jarl, which is how he's known down in history, is perhaps the most known and recognisable figure in Swedish history until we reach the 1500s, really. It's sort of like Richard the Lionheart meets Joan of Arc meets... Emperor Augustus. He, he is the man. Yeah, for sure. And if you're thinking that his story up until now, uh, whilst being quite battly, isn't that out of the ordinary? Well, there is a lot more to come when we go through the life and deeds of Björjör Magnusson, Björjör Jarl, next time. Yes, and that is for next time, and we're done for today. When we return, we'll see how King Eric finally settles the dispute with the Falkungs with a lot of help from his new Jarl, Börje Jarl, and see what plans Eric has for Sweden after military defeating his only pretender and challenger to the title of king. And it's going to be a lot of fun. It will indeed, uh, but that is enough from us for this week. Remember to get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, or email if you have any thoughts, comments, or suggestions. And if you've been listening to our intelligent speech talk that we put up and you have any questions, uh, please do send them as well. As originally, there was a Q&A section after that talk, but we don't have that bit of the recording. So if you want to now get in on that and have any questions then feel free to send them to us yep but uh that's it for now and we'll see you next time hey there bye bye